Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 18 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 18 Consisting of Rounding the Cape of Storms in Olden Time A Rough Christmas The Spray Ties Up for a Three Months Rest at Cape Town A Railway Trip to the Transvaal President Kruger's Odd Definition of the Spray's Voyage his terse sayings, distinguished guests on the spray, coconut fibre as a padlock, courtesies from the Admiral of the Queen's Navy, off for St. Helena, land in sight. The Cape of Good Hope was now the most prominent point to pass. From Table Bay I could count on the aid of brisk trades, and then the spray would soon be at home. On the first day out from Durban it fell calm, and I sat thinking about these things and the end of the voyage. The distance to Table Bay, where I intended to call, was about 800 miles, over what might prove a rough sea. The early Portuguese navigators, endowed with patience, were more than 69 years struggling to round this cape, before they got as far as Algoa Bay, and there the crew mutinied. They landed on a small island, now called Santa Cruz, where they devoutly set up the cross and swore they would cut the captain's throat if he attempted to sail further. Beyond this, they thought, was the edge of the world, which they too believed was flat, and fearing that their ship would sail over the brink of it, they compelled Captain Diaz, their commander, to retrace his course, all being only too glad to get home. A year later, we are told, Vasco de Gama sailed successfully round the Cape of Storms, as the Cape of Good Hope was then called, and discovered Natal on Christmas, or Natal Day, hence the name. From this point the way to India was easy. Gales of wind sweeping round the Cape even now were frequent enough, one occurring on an average every thirty-six hours. But one gale was much the same as another, with no more serious result than to blow the spray along on her course when it was fair, or to blow her back somewhat when it was ahead. 
On Christmas 1897 I came to the pitch of the cape. On this day the spray was trying to stand on her head, and she gave me every reason to believe that she would accomplish the feat before night. She began very early in the morning to pitch and toss about in a most unusual manner, and I have to record that, while I was at the end of the bowsprit reefing the jib, she ducked me under water three times for a Christmas box. I got wet, and did not like it a bit. Never in any other sea was I ever put under more than once in the same short space of time, save three minutes. A large English steamer passing ran up the signal, wishing you a Merry Christmas. I think the captain was a humorist. His own ship was throwing her propeller out of water. Two days later the spray, having recovered the distance lost in the gale, passed Cape Agullis in company with the steamship Scotsman, now with a fair wind. The keeper of the light on Agullis exchanged signals with the spray as she passed, and afterward wrote me at New York congratulations on the completion of the voyage. He seemed to think the incident of two ships of so widely differing types passing his cape together worthy of a place on canvas, and he went about having the picture made. So I gathered from his letter. At lonely stations like this hearts grow responsive and sympathetic, and even poetic. This feeling was shown towards the spray along many a rugged coast, and reading many a kind signal thrown out to her gave one a grateful feeling for all the world. One more gale of wind came down upon the spray from the west after she passed Cape Agullus, but that one she dodged by getting into Simon's Bay. When it moderated she beat round the Cape of Good Hope, where, they say, the flying Dutchman is still sailing. The voyage then seemed as good as finished. From this time on I knew that all, or nearly all, would be plain sailing. Here I crossed the dividing line of weather. To the north it was clear and settled, while south it was humid and squally, with, often enough, as I have said, a treacherous gale. From the recent hard weather the spray ran into a calm under Table Mountain, where she lay quietly till the generous sun rose over the land and drew a breeze in from the sea. The steam-tug alert, then out looking for ships, came to the spray off the lion's rump, and in lieu of a larger ship towed her into port. The sea being smooth, she came to anchor in the bay off the city of Cape Town, where she remained a day, simply to rest clear of the bustle of commerce. The good harbour-master sent his steam-launch to bring the sloop to a berth in dock at once, but I preferred to remain for one day alone, in the quiet of a smooth sea, enjoying the retrospect of the passage of the two great capes. On the following morning the spray sailed into the Alfred Dry Docks, where she remained for about three months in the care of the port authorities, while I travelled the country over, from Simon's Town to Pretoria, being accorded by the colonial government a free railroad pass over all the land. The trip to Kimberley, Johannesburg, and Pretoria was a pleasant one. At the last-named place I met Mr. Kruger, the Transvaal President. His Excellency received me cordially enough, but my friend Judge Bayers, the gentleman who presented me, 
by mentioning that I was on a voyage around the world, unwittingly gave great offence to the venerable statesman, which we both regretted deeply. Mr. Kruger corrected the judge rather sharply, reminding him that the world is flat. "'You don't mean round the world,' said the President. "'It is impossible. You mean in the world.' "'Impossible,' he said, "'impossible.' and not another word did he utter either to the judge or to me. The judge looked at me, and I looked at the judge, who should have known his ground, so to speak, and Mr. Kruger glowered at us both. My friend the judge seemed embarrassed, but I was delighted. The incident pleased me more than anything else that could have happened. It was a nugget of information quarried out of Umpool, some of whose sayings are famous. Of the English, he said, They first took my coat, and then my trousers. He also said, Dynamite is the cornerstone of the South African Republic. Only unthinking people call President Kruger dull. Soon after my arrival at the Cape, Mr. Kruger's friend, Colonel Sanderson, who had arrived from Durban some time before, invited me to Newlands Vineyard, where I met many agreeable people. Footnote. Colonel Sanderson was Mr. Kruger's very best friend, inasmuch as he advised the President to a vast mounting guns. End of footnote. His Excellency Sir Alfred Milner, the Governor, found time to come aboard with a party. The Governor, after making a survey of the deck, found a seat on a box in my cabin. Lady Muriel sat on a keg, and Lady Sanderson sat by the skipper at the wheel, while the colonel, with his Kodak, away in the dinghy, took snapshots of the sloop and her distinguished visitors. Dr. David Gill, Astronomer Royal, who was of the party, invited me the next day to the famous Cape Observatory. An hour with Dr. Gill was an hour among the stars. His discoveries in stellar photography are well known. He showed me the great astronomical clock of the observatory, and I showed him the tin clock of the spray, and we went over the subject of standard time at sea, and how it was found from the deck of the little sloop without the aid of a clock of any kind. Later it was advertised that Dr. Gill would preside at a talk about the voyage of the spray. That alone secured for me a full house. The hall was packed and many were not able to get in. This success brought me sufficient money for all my needs in port, and for the homeward voyage. After visiting Kimberley and Pretoria, and finding the spray all right in the docks, I returned to Worcester and Wellington, towns famous for colleges and seminaries, past coming in, still travelling as the guest of the colony. The ladies of all these institutions of learning wished to know how one might sail round the world alone, which I thought augured of sailing mistresses in the future, instead of sailing masters. It will come to that yet if we menfolk keep on saying we can't. On the plains of Africa I passed through hundreds of miles of rich but still barren lands, save for scrub bushes on which herds of sheep were browsing. The bushes grew about the length of a sheep apart, and they, I thought, were rather long of body, but there was still room for all. My longing for a foothold on land seized upon me here, 
where so much of it lay waste. But instead of remaining to plant forests and reclaim vegetation, I returned again to the spray at the Alfred docks, where I found her waiting for me, with everything in order exactly as I had left her. I have often been asked how it was that my vessel and all appurtenances were not stolen in the various ports where I left her for days together without a watchman in charge. This is just how it was. The spray seldom fell among thieves. At the Keeling Islands, at Rodriguez, and at many such places, a wisp of cocoa-nut fibre in the door-latch, to indicate that the owner was away, secured the goods against even a longing glance. But when I came to a great island nearer home, stout locks were needed. The first night in port, things which I had always left uncovered disappeared, as if the deck on which they were stowed had been swept by a sea. A pleasant visit from Admiral Sir Harry Rawson of the Royal Navy and his family brought to an end the spray's social relations with the Cape of Good Hope. The Admiral, then commanding the South African squadron, and now in command of the great Channel Fleet, evinced the greatest interest in the diminutive spray and her behaviour off Cape Horn, where he was not an entire stranger. I have to admit that I was delighted with the trend of Admiral Rawson's questions, and that I profited by some of his suggestions, notwithstanding the wide difference in our respective commands. On March 26, 1898, the spray sailed from South Africa, the land of distances and pure air, where she had spent a pleasant and profitable time. The steam-tug Tigra towed her to sea from her wanted berth at the Alfred docks, giving her a good offing. The light morning breeze which scantily filled her sails when the tug let go the tow-line soon died away altogether, and left her riding over a heavy swell, in full view of Table Mountain and the high peaks of the Cape of Good Hope. For a while the grand scenery served to relieve the monotony. One of the old circumnavigators, Sir Francis Drake, I think, when he first saw this magnificent pile, sang, "'Tis the fairest thing and the grandest cape I've seen in the whole circumference of the earth." The view was certainly fine, but one has no wish to linger long to look in a calm at anything, and I was glad to note, finally, the short heaving sea, precursor of the wind which followed on the second day. Seals, playing about the spray all day before the breeze came, looked with large eyes when, at evening, she sat no longer like a lazy bird with folded wings. They parted company now, and the spray soon sailed the highest peaks of the mountains out of sight, and the world changed from a mere panoramic view to the light of a homeward-bound voyage. Porpoises and dolphins, and such other fishes as did not mind making a hundred and fifty miles a day, were her companions now for several days. The wind was from the southeast. This suited the spray well, and she ran along steadily at her best speed, while I dipped into the new books given me at the Cape, reading day and night. March 30 was for me a fast day, in honour of them. I read on, oblivious of hunger or wind or sea, thinking that all was going well, when suddenly a coma rolled over the stern and slopped saucily into the cabin, wetting the very book I was reading. Evidently it was time to put in a reef, 
that she might not wallow on her course. March 31. The fair southeast wind had come to stay. The spray was running under a single-reefed mainsail, a whole jib, and a flying jib besides, set on the Vilema bamboo, while I was reading Stevenson's delightful inland voyage. The sloop was again doing her work smoothly, hardly rolling at all, but just leaping along among the white horses, a thousand gambling porpoises keeping her company on all sides. She was again among her old friends the flying fish, interesting denizens of the sea, shooting out of the waves like arrows, and with outstretched wings, they sailed on the wind in graceful curves, then falling till again they touched the crest of the waves to wet their delicate wings and renew the flight. They made merry the live-long day. One of the joyful sights on the ocean of a bright day is the continual flight of these interesting fish. One could not be lonely in a sea like this. Moreover, the reading of delightful adventures enhanced the scene. I was now in the spray, and on the oise, in the Arethusa at one and the same time. And so the spray reeled off the miles, showing a good run every day till April 11, which came almost before I knew it. Very early that morning I was awakened by that rare bird, the booby, with its harsh quack, which I recognised at once as a call to go on deck. It was as much as to say, Skipper, there's land in sight. I tumbled out quickly, and sure enough, away ahead in the dim twilight, about twenty miles off, was St. Helena. My first impulse was to call out, Oh, what a speck in the sea! It is in reality nine miles in length, and two thousand eight hundred and twenty-three feet in height. I reached for a bottle of port wine out of the locker, and took a long pull from it to the health of my invisible helmsman, the pilot of the Pinter. End of chapter 18 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 19 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 19, consisting of In the Isle of Napoleon's Exile Two lectures. A guest in the ghost room at Plantation House. An excursion to historic Longwood. Coffee in the husk and a goat to shell it. The spray's ill luck with animals. A prejudice against small dogs. A rat, the Boston spider, and the cannibal cricket. Ascension Island. It was about noon when the spray came to anchor off Jamestown, and all hands once went ashore to pay respects to His Excellency the Governor of the island, Sir R. A. Sterndale. His Excellency, when I landed, 
remarked that it was not often nowadays that a circumnavigator came his way, and he cordially welcomed me, and arranged that I should tell about the voyage, first at Garden Hall to the people of Jamestown, and then at Plantation House, the Governor's residence, which is in the hills a mile or two back, to His Excellency and the officers of the garrison and their friends. Mr. Poole, our worthy consul, introduced me at the castle, and in the course of his remarks asserted that the sea-serpent was a Yankee. Most royally was the crew of the spray entertained by the governor. I remained at Plantation House a couple of days, and one of the rooms in the mansion called the West Room being haunted, the butler, by command of His Excellency, put me up in that, like a prince. Indeed, to make sure that no mistake had been made, his Excellency came later to see that I was in the right room, and to tell me about the ghosts he had seen or heard of. He had discovered all but one, and wishing me pleasant dreams, he hoped I might have the honour of a visit from the unknown one of the West Room. For the rest of the chilly night I kept the candle burning, and often looked out from under the blankets, thinking that maybe I should meet the great Napoleon face to face, but I saw only furniture, and the horseshoe that was nailed over the door opposite my bed. St. Helena has been an island of tragedies, tragedies that have been lost sight of in wailing over the Corsican. On the second day of my visit the Governor took me by carriage road through the turns over the island. At one point of our journey the road, in winding around spurs and ravines, formed a perfect W within the distance of a few rods. The roads, though tortuous and steep, were fairly good, and I was struck with the amount of labour it must have cost to build them. The air on the heights was cool and bracing. It is said that, since hanging for trivial offences went out of fashion, no one has died there, except from falling over the cliffs in old age, or from being crushed by stones rolling on them from the steep mountains. Witches at one time were persistent at St. Helena, as with us in America, in the days of Cotton Mather. At the present day crime is rare in the island. While I was there, Governor Sterndale, in token of the fact that not one criminal case had come to court within the year, was presented with a pair of white gloves by the officers of justice. Returning from the Governor's house to Jamestown, I drove with Mr. Clark, a countryman of mine, to Longwood, the home of Napoleon. Monsieur Morillo, French consular agent in charge, keeps the place respectable and the buildings in good repair. His family at Longwood, consisting of wife and grown daughters, are natives of courtly and refined manners and spend here days, months, and years of contentment, though they have never seen the world beyond the horizon of St. Helena. On the 20th of April the spray was again ready for sea. Before going on board I took luncheon with the Governor and his family at the castle. Lady Sterndale had sent a large fruit-cake, early in the morning, from Plantation House, to be taken along on the voyage. It was a great high-decker, and I ate sparingly of it, as I thought, but it did not keep as I had hoped it would. I ate the last of it, along with my first cup of coffee at Antigua, West Indies, 
which, after all, was quite a record. The one my own sister made me at the little island in the Bay of Fundy, at the first of the voyage, kept about the same length of time, namely forty-two days. After luncheon a royal mail was made up for ascension, the island next on my way. Then Mr. Poole and his daughter paid the spray a farewell visit, bringing me a basket of fruit. It was late in the evening before the anchor was up, and I bore off for the west, loath to leave my new friends. But fresh winds filled the sloop's sails once more, and I watched the beacon-light at Plantation House, the governor's parting signal for the spray, till the island faded in the darkness astern, and became one with the night, and by midnight the light itself had disappeared below the horizon. When morning came there was no land in sight, but the day went on the same as days before, save for one small incident. Governor Sterndale had given me a bag of coffee in the husk, and Clark, the American, in an evil moment, had put a goat on board, to butt the sack and hustle the coffee-beans out of the pods. He urged that the animal, besides being useful, would be as companionable as a dog. I soon found that my sailing companion, this sort of dog with horns, had to be tied up entirely. The mistake I made was that I did not chain him to the mast instead of tying him with grass ropes less securely, and this I learned to my cost. Except for the first day before the beast got his sea-legs on, I had no peace of mind. After that, actuated by a spirit born maybe of his pasturage, this incarnation of evil threatened to devour everything from flying jib to stern davits. He was the worst pirate I met on the whole voyage. He began depredations by eating my chart of the West Indies in the cabin one day while I was about my work forward, thinking that the critter was securely tied on deck by the pumps. Alas, there was not a rope in the sloop proof against that goat's awful teeth. It was clear from the very first that I was having no luck with animals on board. There was the tree-crab from the Keeling Islands. No sooner had it got a claw through its prison-box than my sea-jacket hanging within reach was torn to ribbons. Encouraged by this success, it smashed the box open and escaped into my cabin, tearing up things generally and finally threatening my life in the dark. I had hoped to bring the creature home alive, but this did not prove feasible. Now the goat devoured my straw hat, and so when I arrived in port I had nothing to wear ashore on my head. This last unkind stroke decided his fate. On the 27th of April the spray arrived at Ascension, which was garrisoned by a man-of-war crew, and the boatswain of the island came on board. As he stepped out of his boat the mutinous goat climbed into it, and defied boatswain and crew. I hired them to land the wretch at once, which they were only too willing to do, and there he fell into the hands of a most excellent Scotchman, with the chances that he would never get away. I was destined to sail once more into the depths of solitude, but these experiences had no bad effect upon me. On the contrary, a spirit of charity and even benevolence grew stronger in my nature through the meditation of these supreme hours on the sea. 
In the loneliness of the dreary country about Cape Horn, I found myself in no mood to make one life less in the world, except in self-defence. And, as I sailed, this trait of the hermit character grew, till the mention of killing food animals was revolting to me. However well I may have enjoyed a chicken stew afterwards at Samoa, a new self rebelled at the thought suggested there of carrying chickens to be slain for my table on the voyage. And Mrs. Stevenson, hearing my protest, agreed with me that to kill the companions of my voyage and eat them would be indeed next to murder and cannibalism. As to pet animals, there was no room for a noble large dog on the spray on so long a voyage, and a small cur was for many years associated in my mind with hydrophobia. I witnessed once the death of a sterling young German from that dreadful disease, and about the same time heard of the death, also by hydrophobia, of the young gentleman who had just written a line of insurance in his company's books for me. I have seen the whole crew of a ship scamper up the rigging to avoid a dog racing about the decks in a fit. It would never do, I thought, for the crew of the spray to take a canine risk, and with these just prejudices indelibly stamped on my mind, I have, I am afraid, answered impatiently too often the query, Why didn't you have a dog? with, I and the dog wouldn't have been very long in the same boat in any sense. A cat would have been a harmless animal, I dare say, but there was nothing for Puss to do on board, and she is an unsociable animal at best. True, a rat got into my vessel at the Keeling Cocos Islands, and another at Rodriguez, along with a centipede stowed away in the hold. But one of them I drove out of the ship, and the other I caught. This is how it was. For the first one, with infinite pains, I made a trap, looking to its capture and destruction, but the wily rodent, not to be deluded, took the hint, and got ashore the day the thing was completed. It is, according to tradition, a most reassuring sign to find rats coming to a ship, and I had a mind to abide the knowing one of Rodriguez, but a breach of discipline decided the matter against him. While I slept one night, my ship sailing on, he undertook to walk over me, beginning at the crown of my head, concerning which I am always sensitive. I slept lightly. Before his impertinence had got him even to my nose, I cried, Rat! had him by the tail, and threw him out of the companionway into the sea. As for the centipede, I was not aware of its presence, till the wretched insect, all feet and venom, beginning, like the rat, at my head, wakened me by a sharp bite on the scalp. This also was more than I could tolerate. After a few applications of kerosene, the poisonous bite, painful at first, gave no further inconvenience. From this on, for a time, no living thing disturbed my solitude. No insect even was present in my vessel, except the spider and his wife from Boston, now with a family of young spiders. Nothing, I say, till sailing down the last stretch of the Indian Ocean, where mosquitoes came by hundreds from rainwater poured out of the heavens. Simply a barrel of rainwater stood on deck five days, I think, in the sun. Then music began. I knew the sound at once. 
it was the same as heard from Alaska to New Orleans. Again at Cape Town, while dining out one day, I was taken with the sound of a cricket, and Mr. Branscombe, my host, volunteered to capture a pair of them for me. They were sent on board next day in a box labelled Pluto and Scamp. Stowing them away in the binnacle in their own snug box, I left them there without food till I got to sea a few days. I had never heard of a cricket eating anything. It seems that Pluto was a cannibal, for only the wings of poor Scamp were visible when I opened the lid, and they lay broken on the floor of the prison-box. Even with Pluto it had gone hard, for he lay on his back stark and stiff, never to chirrup again. Ascension Island, where the goat was marooned, is called the Stone Frigate R.N., and is rated tender to the South African squadron. It lies in 7 degrees 55 minutes south latitude, and 14 degrees 25 minutes west longitude, being in the very heart of the southeast trade winds, and about 840 miles from the coast of Liberia. It is a mass of volcanic matter, thrown up from the bed of the ocean to the height of 2,818 feet at the highest point above sea level. It is a strategic point, and belonged to Great Britain before it got cold. In the limited but rich soil at the top of the island, among the clouds, vegetation has taken root, and a little scientific farming is carried on under the supervision of a gentleman from Canada. Also a few cattle and sheep are pastured there for the garrison mess. Water storage is made on a large scale. In a word, this heap of cinders and lava rock is stored and fortified, and would stand a siege. Very soon after the spray arrived, I received a note from Captain Blacksland, the commander of the island, conveying his thanks for the royal mail brought from St. Helena, and inviting me to luncheon with him and his wife and sisters at headquarters not far away. It is hardly necessary to say that I availed myself of the captain's hospitality at once. A carriage was waiting up the jetty when I landed, and a sailor with a broad grin led the horse carefully up the hill to the captain's house, as if I were a lord of the admiralty, and a governor besides. And he led it as carefully down again when I returned. On the following day I visited the summit among the clouds, the same team being provided, and the same old sailor leading the horse. There was probably not a man on the island at that moment better able to walk than I. The sailor knew that. I finally suggested that we change places. Let me take the bridle, I said, and keep the horse from bolting. Great stone frigate! he exclaimed as he burst into a laugh. This here horse wouldn't bolt no faster than a turtle. If I didn't tow him hard, we'd never get into port. I walked most of the way over the steep grades, whereupon my guide, every inch a sailor, became my friend. Arriving at the summit of the island, I met Mr. Shank, the farmer from Canada, and his sister, living very cosily in a house among the rocks, as snug as cronies and as safe. He showed me over the farm, taking me through a tunnel which led from one field to the other, 
divided by an inaccessible spur of mountain. Mr. Shank said that he had lost many cows and bullocks, as well as sheep, from breakneck over the steep cliffs and precipices. One cow, he said, would sometimes hook another right over a precipice to destruction, and go on feeding unconcernedly. It seemed that the animals on the island farm, like mankind in the wide world, found it all too small. On the 26th of April, while I was ashore, rollers came in which rendered launching a boat impossible. However, the sloop being securely moored to a buoy in deep water outside of all breakers, she was safe, while I, in the best of quarters, listened to well-told stories among the officers of the stone frigate. On the evening of the twenty-ninth, the sea having gone down, I went on board and made preparations to start again on my voyage early next day, the boatswain of the island and his crew giving me a hearty handshake as I embarked at the jetty. For reasons of scientific interest, I invited in mid-ocean the most thorough investigation concerning the crew list of the spray. Very few had challenged it, and perhaps few ever will do so henceforth. But for the benefit of the few that may, I wished to clench beyond doubt the fact that it was not at all necessary in the expedition of a sloop around the world to have more than one man for the crew, all told, and that the spray sailed with only one person on board and so by appointment left Tenant Eagles, the executive officer, in the morning just as I was ready to sail, fumigated the sloop, rendering it impossible for a person to live concealed below, and proving that only one person was on board when she arrived. A certificate to this effect, besides the official documents from many consulates, health offices and custom-houses, will seem to many superfluous, but this story of the voyage may find its way into hands unfamiliar with the business of these offices, and of their ways of seeing that a vessel's papers, and above all her bills of health, are in order. The lieutenant's certificate being made out, the spray nothing loath, now filled away clear of the sea-beaten rocks and the trade-winds, comfortably cool and bracing, sent her flying along on her course. On May 8, 1898, she crossed the track homeward-bound that she had made on October 2, 1895, on the voyage out. She passed Fernando de Norona at night, going some miles south of it, and so I did not see the island. I felt a contentment in knowing that the spray had encircled the globe, and even as an adventure alone I was in no way discouraged as to its utility, and said to myself, let what will happen, the voyage is now on record. A period was made. End of chapter 19 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 20 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
Reading by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 20. Consisting of In the Favouring Current of Capes and Rock, Brazil. All at Sea Regarding the Spanish-American War. An Exchange of Signals with the Battleship Oregon. Off De Freitas' Prison on Devil's Island. Reappearance to the Spray of the North Star. The Light on Trinidad. A Charming Introduction to Grenada. Talks to Friendly Auditors. On May 10 there was a great change in the condition of the sea. There could be no doubt of my longitude now, if any had before existed in my mind. Strange and long-forgotten current ripples pattered against the sloop's sides in grateful music. The tune arrested the ear, and I sat quietly listening to it while the spray kept on her course. By those current ripples I was assured that she was now off St. Rock, and had struck the current which sweeps round the Cape. The trade-winds, we old sailors say, produce this current, which in its course for this point forward is governed by the coastline of Brazil, Guiana, Venezuela, and, as some would say, by the Monroe Doctrine. The trades had been blowing fresh for some time, and the current now at its height amounted to forty miles a day. This, added to the sloops run by the log, made the handsome day's work of one hundred and eighty miles on several consecutive days. I saw nothing of the coast of Brazil, though I was not many leagues off, and was always in the Brazil current. I did not know that war with Spain had been declared, and that I might be liable right there to meet the enemy and be captured. Many had told me at Cape Town that, in their opinion, war was inevitable, and they said, The Spaniard will get you, the Spaniard will get you. To all this I could only say that even so he would not get much. Even in the fever-heat over the disaster to the main I did not think there would be war, but I am no politician. Indeed, I had hardly given the matter a serious thought when, on the 14th of May, just north of the equator and near the longitude of the river Amazon, I first saw a mast with the stars and stripes floating from it, rising astern, as if poked up out of the sea, and then rapidly appearing on the horizon, like a citadel, the Oregon. As she came near, I saw that the great ship was flying the signals C.B.T., which read, Are there any men of war about? Right under these flags, and larger than the spray's mainsail, so it appeared, was the yellowest Spanish flag I ever saw. It gave me a nightmare some time after, when I reflected on it in my dreams. I did not make out the Oregon signals till she passed ahead, where I could read them better, for she was two miles away, and I had no binoculars. When I had read her flags, I hoisted the signal, No, for I had not seen any Spanish men of war. I had not been looking for any. My final signal, Let us keep together for mutual protection, Captain Clark did not seem to regard as necessary. Perhaps my small flags were not made out. Anyhow, the Oregon steamed on with a rush, looking for Spanish men of war, as I learned afterwards. 
The Oregon's great flag was dipped beautifully three times to the spray's lowered flag as she passed on. Both had crossed the line only a few hours before. I pondered long that night over the probability of a war-risk now coming upon the spray after she had cleared all, or nearly all, the dangers of the sea. But finally a strong hope mastered my fears. On the 17th of May, the spray coming out of a storm at daylight made Devil's Island, two points on the lee bow, not far off. The wind was still blowing a stiff breeze on shore. I could clearly see the dark grey buildings on the island as the sloop brought it abeam. No flag or sign of life was seen on the dreary place. Later in the day a French bark on the port tack, making for Cayenne, hove in sight close-hauled on the wind. She was falling to leeward fast. The spray was also close-hauled, and was lugging on sail to secure an offing on the starboard tack, a heavy swell in the night having thrown her too near the shore, and now I considered the matter of supplicating a change of wind. I had already enjoyed my share of favouring breezes over the great oceans, and I asked myself if it would be right to have the wind turned now all into my sails while the Frenchman was bound the other way. A head-current which he stemmed, together with a scant wind, was bad enough for him. And so I could only say in my heart, Lord, let matters stand as they are, but do not help the Frenchman any more just now, for what would suit him would well ruin me. I remembered that when a lad I heard a captain often say in meeting that in answer to a prayer of his own, the wind changed from south-east to north-west, entirely to his satisfaction. He was a good man, but did this glorify the architect, the ruler of the winds and the waves? Moreover, it was not a trade-wind, as I remember it, that changed for him, but one of the variables, which will change when you ask it, if you ask long enough. Again, this man's brother, maybe, was not bound the opposite way, well content with a fair wind himself, which made all the difference in the world. Footnote. The Bishop of Melbourne, commend me to his teachings, refused to set aside a day of prayer for rain, recommending his people to husband water when the rainy season was on. In like manner, a navigator husbands the wind, keeping a weather gauge where practicable. On May 18, 1898, is written large in the spray's log-book, to-night in latitude seven degrees thirteen minutes north, for the first time in nearly three years I see the north star. The spray on the day following logged one hundred and forty-seven miles. To this I add thirty-five miles for current sweeping her onward. On the twentieth of May, about sunset, the island of Tobago, off the Orinoco, came into view, bearing west by north, distant twenty-two miles. The spray was drawing rapidly towards her home destination. Later at night, while running free along the coast of Tobago, the wind still blowing fresh, I was startled by the sudden flash of breakers on the port bow and not far off. I luffed instantly offshore, and then tacked heading in for the island. Finding myself shortly after close in with the land, I tacked again offshore, but without much altering the bearing of the danger. 
sail whichever way I would, it seemed clear that if the sloop weathered the rocks at all it would be a close shave, and I watched with anxiety while beating against the current, always losing ground. So the matter stood hour after hour, while I watched the flashes of light thrown up as regularly as the beats of the long ocean swells, and always they seemed just a little nearer. It was evidently a coral reef, of this I had not the slightest doubt, and a bad reef at that. Worse still, there might be other reefs ahead forming a bight into which the current would sweep me, and where I should be hemmed in and finally wrecked. I had not sailed these waters since a lad, and lamented the day I had allowed on board the goat that ate my chart. I taxed my memory of sea-law, of wrecks on sunken reefs, and of pirates harboured among coral reefs where other ships might not come, but nothing that I could think of applied to the island of Tobago, save the one wreck of Robinson Crusoe's ship in the fiction, and that gave me little information about reefs. I remembered only that in Crusoe's case he kept his powder dry. "'But there she booms again,' I cried, "'and how close the flash is now! "'Almost aboard was that last breaker. "'But you'll go by, Spray, old girl. "'Tis a beam now. "'One surge more, and, oh, one more like that "'will clear your ribs and keel.' "'And I slapped her on the transom, "'proud of her last noble effort "'to leap clear of the danger. "'When a wave greater than the rest "'threw her higher than before,' and behold, from the crest of it was revealed at once all there was of the reef. I fell back in a coil of rope, speechless and amazed, not distressed, but rejoiced. Aladdin's lamp, my fisherman's own lantern. It was the great revolving light on the island of Trinidad, thirty miles away, throwing flashes over the waves which had deceived me. The orb of the light was now dipping on the horizon, and how glorious was the sight of it! But, dear Father Neptune, as I live, after a long life at sea, and much among corals, I would have made a solemn declaration to that reef. Through all the rest of the night I saw imaginary reefs, and not knowing what moment the sloop might fetch up on a real one, I tacked off and on till daylight, as nearly as possible in the same track. All for the want of a chart— I could have nailed the St. Helena's goat's pelt to the deck. My course was now for Grenada, to which I carried letters from Mauritius. About midnight on the 22nd of May I arrived at the island, and cast anchor in the roads off the town of St. George, entering the inner harbour at daylight on the morning of the 23rd, which made forty-two days sailing from the Cape of Good Hope. It was a good run, and I doffed my cap again to the pilot of the pinter. Lady Bruce, in a note to the spray at Point Louis, said Grenada was a lovely island, and she wished the sloop might call there on the voyage home. When the spray arrived, I found that she had been fully expected. How so? I asked. Oh, we heard that you were at Mauritius, they said, and from Mauritius, after meeting Sir Charles Bruce, our old governor, we knew you would come to Grenada. This was a charming introduction, and it brought me in contact with people worth knowing. The spray sailed from Grenada on the 28th of May, and coasted along under the lee of the Antilles, arriving at the island of Dominica on the 30th, 
where, for the want of knowing better, I cast anchor at the quarantine ground, for I was still without a chart of the islands, not having been able to get one even at Grenada. Here I not only met with further disappointment in the matter, but was threatened with a fine for the mistake I made in the anchorage. There were no ships either at the quarantine, or at the commercial roads, and I could not see that it made much difference where I anchored. But a negro chap, a sort of deputy harbour-master coming along, thought it did, and he ordered me to shift to the other anchorage, which, in truth, I had already investigated, and did not like, because of the heavier roll there from the sea. And so, instead of springing to the sails at once to shift, I said I would leave outright as soon as I could procure a chart, which I begged he would send and get for me. "'But I say you must move before you get anything at all,' he insisted, and raising his voice so that all the people along shore could hear him, he added, "'And just now!' Then he flew into a towering passion, when they on shore snickered to see the crew of the spray sitting calmly by the bulwark, instead of hoisting sail. "'I tell you dis am quarantine!' he shouted, very much louder than before. "'That's all right, General,' I replied. "'I want to be quarantined anyhow.' "'That's right, boss!' someone on the beach shouted. "'That's right, you'll get quarantined!' while others shouted to the deputy to make de white trash move along out of dat. They were about equally divided on the island, for and against me. The man who had made so much fuss over the matter gave it up when he found that I wished to be quarantined, and sent for an all-important half-white, who soon came alongside, starched from clue to earring. He stood in the boat as straight up and down as a fathom of pump-water, a marvel of importance. "'Charts!' cried I, as soon as his shirt-collar appeared over the sloop's rail. "'Have you any charts?' "'No, sir,' he replied, with much stiffened dignity. "'No, sir. Charts doesn't grow on this island.' Not doubting the information, I tripped anchor immediately, as I had intended to do from the first, and made all sail for St. John Antigua, where I arrived on the 1st of June, having sailed with great caution in mid-channel all the way. The spray, always in good company, now fell in with the port officer's steam-launch at the harbour entrance, having on board Sir Francis Fleming, governor of the Leeward Islands, who, to the delight of all hands, gave the officer in charge instructions to tow my ship into port. On the following day His Excellency and Lady Fleming, along with Captain Burr, R.N., paid me a visit. The courthouse was tendered free to me at Antigua, as was done also at Grenada, and at each place a highly intelligent audience filled the hall to listen to a talk about the seas the spray had crossed, and the countries she had visited. End of chapter 20 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 21 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Alan Chant 
Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 21 Consisting of Clearing for Home In the Calm Belt A Sea Covered with Sagasso The Jibstay Parts in a Gale Welcomed by a Tornado of Fire Island A Change of Plan Arrival at Newport End of a cruise of over 46,000 miles. The spray again at Fairhaven. On the 4th of June, 1898, the spray cleared from the United States Consulate, and her license to sail single-handed, even round the world, was returned to her for the last time. The United States Consul, Mr. Hunt, before handing the papers to me, wrote on it, as General Roberts had done at Cape Town, a short commentary on the voyage. The document, by regular course, is now lodged in the Treasury Department at Washington, D.C. On June 5, 1898, the spray sailed for a home port, heading first direct to Cape Hatteras. On the 8th of June she passed under the sun from south to north, the sun's declination on that day was 22 degrees 54 minutes, and the latitude of the spray was the same just before noon. Many think it is excessively hot right under the sun. It is not necessarily so. As a matter of fact, the thermometer stands at a bearable point whenever there is a breeze and a ripple on the sea, even exactly under the sun. It is often hotter in cities and on sandy shores in higher latitudes. The spray was booming joyously along for home now, making her usual good time, when of a sudden she struck the horse latitudes, and her sail flapped limp in a calm. I had almost forgotten this calm belt, or had come to regard it as a myth. I now found it real, however, and difficult to cross. This was as it should have been, for, after all the dangers of the sea, the dust-storm on the coast of Africa, the rain of blood in Australia, and the war-risk when nearing home, a natural experience would have been missing had the calm of the horse latitudes been left out. Anyhow, a philosophical turn of thought now was not amiss, else one's patience would have given out almost at the harbour entrance. The term of her probation was eight days. Evening after evening during this time I read by the light of a candle on deck. There was no wind at all, and the sea became smooth and monotonous. For three days I saw a fully rigged ship on the horizon, also becalmed. Sargasso scattered over the sea in bunches, or trailed curiously along down the wind in narrow lanes, now gathered together in great fields, strange sea animals, little and big, swimming in and out, the most curious among them being a tiny seahorse, which I captured and brought home preserved in a bottle. But on the 18th of June a gale began to blow from the southwest, and the Sargasso was dispersed again in windrows and lanes. On this day there was soon wind enough, and to spare. The same might have been said of the sea. The spray was in the midst of the turbulent gulf stream itself. She was jumping like a porpoise over the uneasy waves, as if to make up for lost time she seemed to touch only the high places. Under a sudden shock and strain her rigging began to give out. First the mainstay strap was carried away, then the peak halyard block broke from the gaff. 
it was time to reef and refit, and so when all hands came on deck, I went about doing that. The 19th of June was fine, but on the morning of the 20th another gale was blowing, accompanied by cross seas that tumbled about and shook things up with great confusion. Just as I was thinking about taking in sail, the jib-stay broke at the masthead, and fell jib and all into the sea. It gave me the strangest sensation to see the bellying sail fall, and where it had been, suddenly to see only space. However, I was in the bows with presence of mind to gather it in on the first wave that rolled up, before it was torn or trailed under the sloop's bottom. I found, by the amount of work done in three minutes or less time, that I had by no means grown stiff-jointed on the voyage. Anyhow, scurvy had not set in. And now, being within a few degrees of home, I might complete the voyage, I thought, without the aid of a doctor. Yes, my health was still good, and I could skip about the decks in lively manner, but could I climb? The great King Neptune tested me severely at this time, for the stay being gone, the mast itself switched about like a reed, and was not easy to climb. But a gun-tackle purchase was got up, and the stay set taut from the masthead, for I had spare blocks and rope on board with which to rig it, and the jib, with a reef in it, was soon pulling again like a sodger for home. Had the spray's mast not been well stepped, however, it would have been John Walker when the stay broke. Good work in the building of my vessel stood me always in good stead. On the 23rd of June, I was at last tired, tired, tired of baffling squalls and fretful cobble seas. I had not seen a vessel for days and days, where I had expected the company of at least a schooner now and then. As to the whistling of the wind through the rigging, and the slopping of the seas against the sloop's sides, that was well enough in its way, and we could not have got on without it, the spray and I. But there was so much of it now, and it lasted so long. At noon on that day a winterish storm was upon us from the nor'west. In the gulf stream, thus late in June, hailstones were pelting the spray, and lightning was pouring down from the clouds, not in flashes alone, but in almost continuous streams. By slants, however, day and night, I worked the sloop in towards the coast, where on the 25th of June, off Fire Island, she fell into the tornado which, an hour earlier, had swept over New York City with lightning that wrecked buildings, and sent trees flying about in splinters. Even ships at docks had parted their moorings, and smashed into other ships, doing great damage. It was the climax storm of the voyage, but I saw the unmistakable character of it in time to have all snug aboard, and receive it under bare poles. Even so the sloop shivered when it struck her, and she heeled over unwillingly on her beam-ends, but rounding to with a sea-anchor ahead, she righted and faced out the storm. In the midst of the gale I could do no more than look on, for what is a man in a storm like this? I had seen one electric storm on the voyage, off the coast of Madagascar, but it was unlike this one. Here the lightning kept on longer, and thunderbolts fell in the sea all about. Up to this time I was bound for New York, but when all was over I rose, made sail, and hove the sloop round from starboard to port tack, 
to make for a quiet harbour to think the matter over. And so, under short sail, she reached in for the coast of Long Island, while I sat thinking and watching the lights of coasting vessels which now began to appear in sight. Reflections of the voyage, so nearly finished, stole in upon me now. Many tunes I had hummed again and again came back once more. I found myself repeating fragments of a hymn often sung by a dear Christian woman of Fairhaven when I was rebuilding the spray. I was to hear once more, and only once, in profound solemnity, the metaphorical hymn, By waves and wind I am tossed and driven. And again, But still my little ship outbraves the blustering winds and stormy waves. After this storm I saw the pilot of the Pinter no more. The experiences of the voyage of the spray, reaching over three years, had been to me like reading a book, and one that was more and more interesting as I turned the pages, till I had come now to the last page of all, and the one more interesting than any of the rest. When daylight came, I saw that the sea had changed colour from dark green to light. I threw the lead and got soundings in thirteen fathoms. I made the land soon after, some miles east of Fire Island, and sailing thence before a pleasant breeze along the coast made for Newport. The weather after the furious gale was remarkably fine. The spray rounded Montauk Point early in the afternoon. Point Judith was abeam at dark. She fetched in at Beaver Tail next. Sailing on, she had one more danger to pass. Newport Harbour was mined. The spray hugged the rocks along where neither friend nor foe could come if drawing much water, and where she would not disturb the guardship in the channel. It was close work, but it was safe enough so long as she hugged the rocks close, and not the mines. Flitting by a low point abreast of the guardship, the dear old Dexter, which I knew well, someone on board of her sang out, "'There goes a craft!' I threw up a light at once, and heard the hail, "'Spray! Ahoy!' It was the voice of a friend, and I knew that a friend would not fire on the spray. I eased off the main-sheet now, and the spray swung off for the beacon-lights of the inner harbour. At last she reached port in safety, and there, at 1 a.m. on June 27, 1898, cast anchor, after the cruise of more than 46,000 miles round the world, during an absence of three years and two months, with two days over for coming up. Was the crew well? Was I not? I had profited in many ways by the voyage. I had even gained flesh, and actually weighed a pound more than when I sailed from Boston. As for ageing, why, the dial of my life was turned back, till my friends all said, Slocum is young again. And so I was, at least ten years younger than the day I felled the first tree for the construction of the spray. My ship was also in better condition than when she sailed from Boston on her long voyage. She was still as sound as a nut, and as tight as the best ship afloat. She did not leak a drop, not one drop. The pump, which had been little used before reaching Australia, had not been rigged since that at all. The first name on the Spray's visitor's book in the home port was written by the one who always said, The Spray will come back. 
the spray was not quite satisfied till I sailed her around to her birthplace, Fairhaven, Massachusetts, further along. I had myself a desire to return to the place of the very beginning whence I had, as I have said, renewed my age. So on July 3, with a fair wind, she waltzed beautifully round the coast, and up the Akushnet River to Fairhaven, where I secured her to the cedar spile driven in the bank to hold her when she was launched. I could bring her no nearer home. If the spray discovered no continents on her voyage, it may be that there were no continents left to be discovered. She did not seek new worlds, or sail to pow-wow about the dangers of the sea. The sea has been much maligned. To find one's way to lands already discovered is a good thing, and the spray made the discovery that even the worst sea is not so terrible to a well-appointed ship. No king, no country, no treasury at all was taxed for the voyage of the spray, and she accomplished all that she undertook to do. To succeed, however, in anything at all, one should go understandingly about his work, and be prepared for every emergency. I see, as I look back over my own small achievement, a kit of not too elaborate carpenter's tools, a tin clock, and some carpet tacks, not a great many, to facilitate the enterprise as already mentioned in the story. But above all to be taken into account were some years of schooling, where I studied with diligence Neptune's laws, and these laws I tried to obey when I sailed overseas. It was worth the while. And now, without having wearied my friends, I hope, with detailed scientific accounts, theories, or deductions, I will only say that I have endeavoured to tell just the story of the adventure itself. This, in my own poor way, having been done, I now moor ship, weather-bit cables, and leave the sloop spray, for the present, safe in port. End of chapter 21 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Appendix to Sailing Alone Around the World this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Appendix Consisting of Lines and Sail Plan of the Spray Her Pedigree as Known So Far the lines of the spray, her self-steering qualities, sail plan and steering gear, an unprecedented feat, a final word of cheer to would-be navigators. From a feeling of diffidence towards sailors of great experience, I refrained in the preceding chapters as prepared for serial publication in the Century magazine, from entering fully into the details of the spray's build, and of the primitive methods employed to sail her. 
Having had no sailing experience at all, I had no means of knowing that the trim vessels seen in our harbours and near the land could not all do as much, or even more, than the spray sailing, for example, on a course with the helm lashed. I was unaware that no other vessel had sailed in this manner round the globe, but would have been loath to say that another could not do it, or that many men had not sailed vessels of a certain rig in that manner as far as they wished to go. I was greatly amused, therefore, by the flat assertions of an expert that it could not be done. The spray, as I sailed her, was entirely a new boat, built over from a sloop which bore the same name, and which, tradition said, had first served as an oysterman about a hundred years ago on the coast of Delaware. There was no record in the custom-house of where she was built. She was once owned at Noank, Connecticut, afterward in New Bedford, and when Captain Eben Pierce presented her to me at the end of her natural life, she stood, as I have already described, propped up in a field at Fairhaven. Her lines were supposed to be those of a North Sea fisherman. In rebuilding timber by timber and plank by plank, I added to her freeboard twelve inches amidships, eighteen inches forward, and fourteen inches aft, thereby increasing her sheer and making her, as I thought, a better deep-water ship. I will not repeat the history of the rebuilding of the spray, which I have detailed in my first chapter, except to say that, when finished, her dimensions were thirty-six feet nine inches overall, fourteen feet two inches wide, and four feet two inches deep in the hold, her tonnage being nine tons net, and twelve and seventy-one hundredths tons gross. I gladly reproduce the lines of the spray, with such hints as my really limited fore-and-aft sailing will allow, my seafaring life having been spent mostly in barks and ships. No pains have been spared to give them accuracy. The spray was taken from New York to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and under the supervision of the Park City Yacht Club was hauled out of water and very carefully measured in every way to secure a satisfactory result. Captain Robbins produced the model. Our young yachtsman, pleasuring in the lilies of the sea, very naturally will not think favourably of my craft. They have a right to their opinion, while I stick to mine. They will take exception to her short ends, the advantage of these being most apparent in a heavy sea. Some things about the spray's deck might be fashioned differently without materially affecting the vessel. I know of no good reason why, for a party-boat, a cabin-trunk might not be built amidships, instead of far aft, like the one on her which leaves a very narrow space between the wheel and the line of the companionway. Some even say that I might have improved the shape of her stern. I do not know about that. The water leaves her run sharp after bearing her to the last inch, and no suction is formed by undue cutaway. Smooth-water sailors say, where is her overhang? They never cross the gulf stream in a nor'easter, and they do not know what is best in all weathers. For your life build no fan-tail overhang on a craft going offshore. As a sailor judges his prospective ship by a blow of the eye, 
when he takes interest enough to look her over at all, so I judged the spray, and I was not deceived. In a sloop-rig the spray made that part of her voyage reaching from Boston through the Strait of Magellan, during which she experienced the greatest variety of weather conditions. The yule-rig then adopted was an improvement only in that it reduced the size of a rather heavy mainsail, and slightly improved her steering qualities on the wind. When the wind was aft, the jigger was not in use. Invariably it was then furled. With her boom broad off, and with the wind two points on the quarter, the spray sailed her truest course. It never took long to find the amount of helm or angle of rudder required to hold her on her course, and when that was found I lashed the wheel with it at that angle. The mainsail then drove her, and the main jib with its sheet bowsed flat amidships, or a little to one side or the other, added greatly to the steadying power. Then, if the wind was even strong or squally, I would sometimes set a flying jib also, on a pole rigged out on the bowsprit, with the sheets hauled flat amidships, which was a safe thing to do, even in a gale of wind. A stout downhaul on the gaff was a necessity, because without it the mainsail might not have come down when I wished to lower it in a breeze. The amount of helm required varied according to the amount of wind and its direction. These points are quickly gathered from practice. Briefly I have to say that when close-hauled in a light wind under all sail she required little or no weather-helm. As the wind increased I would go on deck, if below, and turn the wheel up a spoke more or less, relash it, or as sailors say, put it in a becket, and then leave it as before. To answer the questions that might be asked to meet every contingency would be a pleasure, but it would overburden my book. I can only say here that much comes to one in practice, and that with such as love sailing, mother wit is the best teacher after experience. Labour-saving appliances? There were none. The sails were hoisted by hand, the halyards were rove through ordinary ship's blocks with common patent rollers, of course the sheets were all belayed aft. The windlass used was in the shape of a winch or crab, I think it is called. I had three anchors, weighing forty pounds, one hundred pounds, and one hundred and eighty pounds respectively. The windlass and the forty-pound anchor, and the fiddle-head or carving on the end of the cutwater, belonged to the original spray. The ballast, concrete cement, was staunchened down securely. There was no iron or lead or other weight on the keel. If I took measurements by rule, I did not set them down, and after sailing even the longest voyage in her, I could not tell off-hand the length of her mast, boom, or gaff. I did not know the centre of effort in her sails, except as it hit me in practice at sea, nor did I care a rope-yarn about it. Mathematical calculations, however, are all right in a good boat, and the spray could have stood them. She was easily balanced, and easily kept in trim. Some of the oldest and ablest shipmasters have asked how it was possible for her to hold a true course before the wind, which is just what the spray did for weeks together. One of these gentlemen, a highly esteemed shipmaster and friend, 
testified as government expert in a famous murder trial in Boston, not long since, that a ship would not hold her course long enough for the steersman to leave the helm to cut the captain's throat. Ordinarily, it would be so. One might say that with a square-rigged ship it would always be so. But the spray, at the moment of the tragedy in question, was sailing around the globe with no one at the helm, except at intervals more or less rare. However, I may say here that this would have had no bearing on the murder case in Boston. In all probability justice laid her hand on the true rogue. In other words, in the case of a model and rig similar to that of the tragedy ship, I should myself testify as the nautical experts at the trial. But see the run the spray made from Thursday Island to the Keeling Cocos Island, twenty-seven hundred miles distant, in twenty-three days, with no one at the helm at that time, save for about an hour, from land to land. No other ship in the history of the world ever performed under similar circumstances the feat on so long and continuous a voyage. It was, however, a delightful midsummer sail. No one can know the pleasure of sailing free over the great oceans, save those who have had the experience. It is not necessary, in order to realise the utmost enjoyment of going around the globe, to sail alone, yet for once and the first time there was a great deal of fun in it. My friend, the government expert, and saltiest of salt-sea captains, standing only yesterday on the deck of the spray, was convinced of her famous qualities, and he spoke enthusiastically of selling his farm on Cape Cod and putting to sea again. To young men contemplating a voyage, I would say, go. The tales of rough usage are for the most part exaggerations, as also are the stories of sea danger. I had a fair schooling in the so-called hard ships, on the hard western ocean, and in the years there I do not remember having once been called out of my name. Such recollections have endeared the sea to me. I owe it further to the officers of all the ships I ever sailed in, as boy and man, to say that not one ever lifted so much as a finger to me. I did not live among angels, but among men who could be roused. My wish was, though, to please the officers of my ship wherever I was, and so I got on. Dangers there are, to be sure, on the sea as well as on the land, but the intelligence and skill God gives to man reduce these to a minimum. And here comes in again the skilfully modelled ship, worthy to sail the seas. To face the elements is, to be sure, no light matter when the sea is in its grandest mood. You must then know the sea, and know that you know it, and not forget that it was made to be sailed over. I have given in the plans of the spray the dimensions of such a ship as I should call seaworthy in all conditions of weather and on all seas. It is only right to say, though, that to ensure a reasonable measure of success, experience should sail with the ship. But in order to be a successful navigator or sailor, it is not necessary to hang a tar-bucket round one's neck. On the other hand, much thought concerning the brass buttons one should wear adds nothing to the safety of the ship. I may some day see reason to modify the model of the dear old spray, 
but out of my limited experience I strongly recommend her wholesome lines over those of pleasure-flyers for safety. Practice in a craft such as the spray will teach young sailors and fit them for the more important vessels. I myself learned more seamanship, I think, on the spray than on any other ship I ever sailed. And as for patience, the greatest of all the virtues, even while sailing through the reaches of the Strait of Magellan, between the bluff mainland and dismal fuego, where through intricate sailing I was obliged to steer, I learned to sit by the wheel, content to make ten miles a day beating against the tide, and when a month at that was all lost, I could find some old tune to hum while I worked the route all over again, beating as before. Nor did thirty hours at the wheel, in storm, overtax my human endurance, and to clap a hand to an oar, and pull into or out of port in a calm, was no strange experience for the crew of the spray. The days passed happily with me, wherever my ship sailed. End of Appendix and End of Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England during the early summer of 2007. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk The recordings of herring gulls used in these readings are in the public domain. They may be found at www.pdsounds.org. The gulls were recorded by Tony Phillips, near where Joshua Slocum built the spray. Only one hundred years later. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.